Uh, we're going to pick up again in Matthew chapter 27. We're looking at the crucifixion continued because now at this stage that we're at, Jesus is hanging on the cross. He has been nailed uh, up there and now there are um, things that are going on. And we're only going to travel through, I'd say, about seven or eight verses a day uh, because there's just a lot to cover and I think I can cover it all. Um, but I'm going to pick up to verse 37, if you would. So it says, And above his head, they put up a strange, uh, put up the charge, I should say, against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now, that's the first thing that it strikes me very fascinating because um, when you think about his trial before Pontius Pilate, which we looked at weeks ago, one of the questions that Pilate asked Jesus is, are you the king of the Jews? Well, you know, Jesus doesn't really give him everything he wants to. Um, and so Pilate, if you think about, because he's the one who made sure that this was put above Jesus' head in Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, Latin, the language of the world, Greek, the language of the Hellenized day, and Hebrew, the language of the Jews. Um, he puts us above him. It's almost like Pilate answers his own question. He asks Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? And then he answers the question, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. <laughs> so it's pretty interesting, isn't it? Now, here's what's fascinating also. This, is, uh, this charge, this was his crime, by the way, king of the Jews, which is treason against Rome. They would hang it around uh, the victim's neck as he carried the cross to be crucified. So he's, he's got this thing hanging around his neck his crime. Hold that thought there, but let me say something else. When they get there to the place of crucifixion, it says that they, above his head, they put the charge. So Jesus is hanging there, and above his head of the charge. So there's a couple types of um, crosses that historians look at, possibly Jesus hung on. One is a capital T type cross. Another one is a small T type cross. Well, if they hung it above Jesus' head, if it was a capital T-type cross, there's no place to hang it. If it was a small T-type cross, well, there's plenty of room to hang it right there above his head. And so it leads me to believe that the cross that Jesus hung on was a small T-type cross. So it had room at the top for them to hang it there. Now, an interesting thing about this is, remember, they would put the, the crime of the person hand on his neck, and when he get to the cross, they'd put it above his head. His crime is, he's the, he, he claims to be the king of the Jews, treason against Rome and Caesar, everything else. But the crime is posted while he's hanging on the cross. I like that a lot. Because if you would, turn with me to Colossians uh, chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, and I believe we're going to read verses 13, 14, and 15. It's got an interesting statement that we can uh, parallel to the cross, and that is this, verse 13. When you were dead in your transgressions, now make no mistake about it on that statement there. You and I weren't just sinners. We were dead. Dead in our trespasses and sins. We were dead to God. Remember, the day you eat of it, Adam and Eve, you will die. So we were dead in your transgressions. And the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, Jesus, made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us 
all our transgressions, everything, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, uh, which was hostile to us, he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When it says taken out of the way, the literal idea is it's whitewashed. Like if you had a wall, a certain color, somebody graffitied, you take the whitewash paint, paint over, and you no longer see the statement that the graffiti was making. This is the idea here. It's whitewashed. You can't see what the stated crimes were. Verse 15, we'll get to that in a second. When he had disarmed the rulers and authorities, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. So now watch. <clears throat> they put Jesus' crime above his head. They nailed it to the cross. Jesus nailed to the cross. Here it says that he cancels out our certificate of debt. The things that decrees against us, that our crimes, our sins, that in a sense were hung over our head, hung around our neck if we were to carry that cross. Jesus on the cross, he, he whitewashed it by getting nailed to the cross. Isn't that amazing? Before you say, oh, that's a really cool thought, you need to really get this one. Because every sin, every mistake, every failure, Everything that you blew and messed up, once you come to Christ and you ask Him to forgive you, it's whitewashed. It's taken out of the way. It's gone. It's gone forever. Isn't that a great, great thing? Completely taken out of the way because by faith you put your faith in Jesus. You identify with Him on the cross. It's nailed there and it's gone under the blood of Jesus. So lighten up on yourself, my friends, because the devil is very smart and one of his methodologies is he accuses you and I day and night. He'll bring up things from the past. He'll replay it in our head. But you need to remind him it's whitewashed. It's washed away under the blood. But here's, it gets even better. Because verse 15 said, on that cross, he disarmed all the rulers. He disarmed all the authorities. Well, wait a minute here. You mean to tell me demons and the devil have no power over the born-again believer? You, you better believe they don't. He, they've been disarmed. Their weapons have been removed. And it take it even step deeper. Not only have they been disarmed, there's an old nature inside of you and inside of me. We find in, in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, that on the cross, he rendered our old nature dead. It means paralyzed, without power. You know the old you that screams to sin? You know the old you that craves to sin? I know him. He lives in me too. He's me and he's you. That's the old, it's called the flesh, the old nature. That old guy and gal that wants to sin, he has also been rendered powerless by the cross and by the blood of Jesus. Isn't that crazy? Isn't that wild? Isn't that the best thing? My old self's rendered powerless. Can't make me sin. All the rulers and authorities, Satan and every demon, they have no power. They've been rendered powerless. And so you and I are free. We are free and every sin in our past has been washed away. So you don't have to walk around, you know, in guilt or condemnation. You don't have to walk around feeling like, well, I got to beat myself up a little bit and make myself feel bad because, you know, I said, no, under the blood, it's under the blood. 
It's a done deal. And I like to hammer this one home um, when, I, when I speak on these things because, you know, we get stuck in things like that. No. Now, let me take you down another cool little idea from uh, verse 37 of Matthew 27. Um, because he says, uh, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Now look over at John chapter 19. Remember, the sign says this is Jesus, King of the Jews. In John chapter 19, uh, we know that Pilate has put the sign that says, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Verse 22, Pilate says, when they say, take it down, take it down, Pilate says, Pilate answered, goes, look what I've written, I have written, John 19, 22. I've written, I've written, that's it. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Now what you need to understand is this. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, those are great words. In Hebrew, there are only four words that make up that whole statement. Mm -hmm. And those four words, they begin... Here's how the letters begin. Yod, Hai, Wad, Hey. In English, it's Y-H-W-H. Where we get the word Yahweh. Oh, meaning God. It's almost like it's possible that Pilate, because they stuck it to him and they put the pressure on him to crucify Jesus, that he stuck it back to them and said, there's, your, there's Yahweh. He is God. Now, did he believe it? I don't, I don't know, and I don't think so, because we know he went kind of nuts and crazy, I think, in Gaul, and uh, he committed suicide. But we know his wife warned him. So there was a lot of turmoil going on inside of John about that. But he sticks it to the Jews, <laughs> Yahweh, right be, when, when Jesus is up on that cross. Now, back to Matthew 27. Verse 38 says, at that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Before we look at this in a different passage, let me just say this. Jesus is crucified between two robbers, two evil guys. Isn't that just like the way Jesus lived? Always hanging out in the company of bad people. He's always hanging out with bad people. You know why? Because those who are healthy don't need a physician. But those who are sick know they need a physician. Before I came to Christ, I didn't think I had any problems. Are you kidding me? I'm fine. I, I don't need a physician. But the night I got saved and I heard the message from the preacher, David Wilkerson, you know, you begin to realize, I, I am sick. I do have problems. I am depraved. And I needed the great physician to heal me. And thank God that Jesus came and he hung around with bad people. He came for the sick. He came for the broken. He came for the broken heart of the downtrodden. He came to release the, the captives, the prisoners. He came for all these things. Now, he's crucified between two robbers. Now, let me say this because I got two more big issues in, these, in this verse right here. Do you remember... When uh, James and John's mother got this great idea, her, her, you know, she's, you know, Emily, whose mom wouldn't have done what she did? Jesus, um, I have a um, favor. And he says, what do you want me to do for you? She goes, grant, 
In other words, make it so that when you come in glory, that both my sons, James and John, because they're such good boys, and look how good looking they are. They always got good grades. That James and John sit one on your right and one on your left in glory. And he says, you really don't know what you're asking for. And then he asks her, are they able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And the boy said, we are able. <laughs> yeah, right. There was no way they were able. Now, think about that. Can you imagine the mother of James and John who begged for her boys to be one on the right and one on the left in, the, in Jesus' glory when he comes and ushers in the kingdom? Can you imagine what she thought standing there or kneeling there at the cross looking up at Jesus and she saw robbers on each side nailed, one there and one there, on the right and on the left? What do you think she thought at that time? I know what I would have thought, and I think she probably thought this too. Thank God Jesus doesn't answer all our prayers. And aren't you glad? Because how many prayers did you pray that weren't answered? And at the time you think, oh my God, you're so angry with God. God, why didn't you? And then later on you're like, hey, thank you for not answering that. <laughs> because that would have been the worst. <laughs> Oh, oh, no, no, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for not doing that. Now, he's, he's between two robbers. And, you know, we know the story, but just for the sake of some going back over it, let's go over it again. Let's turn to Luke 23. Let's go to Luke 23, would you? Because we're going to see uh, the dialogue between the two robbers on the cross. And it's always fun to cross-reference back and forth to get the full picture of what's going on here. I'm going to read um, verses 39 to 43 of Luke 23 because it's the dialogue of the thieves on the cross. Luke gives us more detail. One of the criminals who were hanged there was hurling abuse at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Meaning the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Savior. He says, And save yourself and us. If you come to deliver, then deliver us. Do what you're supposed to be doing. Of course, they don't understand the deliverance that he's bringing. But the other answered and rebuking him said, Do you not even fear God? Since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed are suffering justly because we deserve this, what we're getting. For we are receiving what we deserve for our deeds. But this man, pointing, looking at Jesus, he's done nothing wrong. And he was saying, Jesus, now he turns to Jesus, we've done... He's done nothing wrong. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Ooh. And he said to him, here's Jesus' reply, Truly I say to you, today, today, you shall be with me in paradise. Huh? First off, Jesus only converts 50% of the people that day. One repents, one doesn't. So don't feel bad when you share your faith with somebody and they don't, they don't respond, they don't convert. Jesus only batted 50% that day. <laughs> you never thought of it that way, huh? But he says, today, how in the world are you going to be with me in paradise today? I, I'm stuck on a cross. He says, today, you shall be with me in paradise. To the repentant thief. Because remember, I have shared with you in the past that Jesus is going to take this man 
into the bowels of the earth because before Jesus died and rose from the dead, all believers in Yahweh who died, they, they, they couldn't go to heaven. Their, their sins weren't washed by the blood because Jesus hadn't come. So they would go into paradise. Center of the earth. One side was the good side of Abraham's bosom. The other side was Hades and hell. A massive valley was fixed between the two. You can't cross. Jesus takes the good repentant thief to paradise, the good side. The other thief, the one that never repents, he goes into Hades. And there you could see each other. There's a story Jesus tells when he pulls back the curtain so you can understand that. He tells the guy, because you repented, you put your faith in me, remember me when you come in your kingdom, I'm taking you with me to paradise. And he does. And three days later when Jesus blows the doors open, that man goes to heaven. Because now, because the blood of Jesus and his death on the cross and substitutionary death and rising from the dead, boom, everybody who has placed their faith in Jesus and walks with him, they go to heaven. So that thief, that last second deathbed repentance was valid. Never underestimate a last second deathbed repentance. As if to say something like, well, it's too late. You should have lived like, no, 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 no. Seconds before a person dies, they can repent and place their faith in Jesus. And man, if you know anyone that's near death, you need to get there. You at least tell them, at least tell them, so they know, so they know. Now I'm back to Matthew 27, verse 39. And those passing by, now remember he's hanging on the cross, and those passing by, and remember it's a well-traveled road north side of Jerusalem, and it's put in three languages because all the people that would pass by so everybody wouldn't understand what the crime is. So it's a busy street. It's a busy uh, uh, road. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. And they're saying ugly things to him. Here's what they're saying, verse 40. You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days? Save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down off the cross. Isn't that weird? They are still twisting and distorting the actual words that Jesus said. They're saying, Jesus, you are the one who's going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. That's not what he said. He said, destroy this temple. In other words, if you destroy this temple, which we know on the cross they're trying to, destroy this temple, in three days I will rebuild it. He's given them terminology of death and resurrection. They're twisting it the whole other way. Oh, you said you're going to destroy the temple here in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount, and in three days you're going to rebuild it back up. They twist it. They turn it. They're still doing this at the very, very end. Let me tell you something about that. When you read Scripture and you memorize verses, memorize it word for word because the devil is a master at twisting the Word of God. He's twisting it here through people. He's a master at it. All you have to do is go watch the, um, the battle between Satan and Jesus in the desert and you see that Satan is quoting scripture of Jesus about 90% right, 80% right. But then that last 10 to 20%, it's distorted. 
it's off. And that is one of the um, uh, evidences of Satan's strategy. He'll always take scripture and just twist it a bit and then we go off on some tangent that has nothing to do with the will of God or how God would handle a situation. Always, always memorize word for word what it says. They're twisting, they're distorting the words of Jesus. You know, personally, I, I hate when people twist the words I've said. I, I don't like it at all because it gives the inference to others that that's what I actually said and I actually believe. Man, this happens in the news all the time. Some of us get our heads all twisted up because we listen to people who twist words of, of people, twisted words left and right. You know, go back and see actually what somebody said before you believe somebody. Now, um, verse 41 says, In the same way, the chief priests also, well, now we've got everybody mocking him, everybody wagging their, now the chief priests are doing the same thing. These are the religious leaders. These are like the governing officials of Jerusalem, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, these are the big dogs, were mocking him. Now they're mocking him. And here's what they're saying. Verse 42, he saved. We're going to come back to that in just one second. He saved others. What do they mean? He did so many good deeds to so many people. He delivered so many people. They're acknowledging it. He saved others. But then they add, he cannot save himself. And it's mocking. They're going, he can't even save himself. He is the king of Israel. Watch what they say. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Stop. They're saying, if you come down off the cross, if you can find a way to pull the nails out, if you can find a way to deliver yourself... We will believe that you are the Messiah. Question, would they believe? No, they wouldn't. But they're saying, look, we'll believe you if you jump off the cross. We will believe everything you've said. We will believe you are God in the flesh. We will believe it all. Just jump off the cross. No, they wouldn't. No, they wouldn't. I got another statement to make before I give you the big statements. They say, he saved others himself he cannot save. They said, come down, save yourself, and we'll believe. Guys, can he save himself? No. Because notice the first heaven, he saved others. Listen to the words. If he saves himself and says, forget this whole thing, calls down 100,000 angels, gets off the cross, then he can never save others. Because this is the only way. He must die a substitutionary death for you and I on that cross. He must have his blood shed. There is no other way. Why do you think in the garden he's saying, if there's any other way, Father? But there is no other way. This is it. Now, he saved others. He's hanging on a cross. He's suspended in the air. Let's just do some cross-referencing now, just to have some fun and humor me, okay? So, turn to John chapter uh, 3. Turn to John chapter 3. Now watch this. I'm going to do some parallel verses. You know, Nicodemus is a religious leader who is troubled. 
and he's troubled because he wants to more know want to wants to know more about Jesus. So he comes to Jesus by night. And he starts asking questions. And he's not understanding. It's really tough for the guy. And he's really trying. He, Jesus even says, Are you the teacher of Israel? He goes, Yeah, I, I am. He goes, and then Jesus says, You don't even understand what I'm telling you? He says, If I told you earthly things you do not believe, how should I tell if I tell you heavenly things, how will you believe then? He says, You're not getting it. So Jesus is going to make sure that he gets it. At least, at least begins to scratch the surface to try to understand, Nicodemus, what must happen. And watch what Jesus says to him in John 3, verse 14, 15, and 16. Here's what he tells him. Nicodemus, As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up. Instantly, Nicodemus' mind shifts back to that story, Numbers 21. We'll get there in a second. Instantly, Jesus takes him to an Old Testament story to illustrate something that's going to happen to Jesus. He's trying to get Nicodemus to get it. Because remember, it's about crucifixion and resurrection. So that whoever believes will in him have eternal life. And then the famous verse we all know. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life. I always like to ask the question, for God so loved the world, how do you measure so? How long is, for God so loved the world? How do you measure that? It's not measurable. But here's the thing. Jesus is describing what's going to, hap to happen to Him He'll be suspended on a cross and he uses an Old Testament story in Numbers 21 to illuminate Nicodemus. Nicodemus is not understanding anything Jesus is saying up to this point. And Nicodemus is one of the most highly trained and educated religious men in that time period. And he don't get it. So Jesus says, i got to find another way. Now, I have a question. Jesus says, as Moses, was lifted up in the, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so I must be lifted up. Why doesn't Jesus just say, I'm going to be crucified on a cross? And that's how salvation is going to come to mankind. Why didn't he just say that? Because if Jesus would have said that, Nicodemus would have shut down right away and said, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. That makes zero sense whatsoever. So Jesus never mentions the word crucifixion Nicodemus. He uses terminology that he knows Nicodemus can understand. This is a smart preacher. You use, this is a smart way to witness. You use things that they can understand. Instead of trying to use all your biblically long theological terms, use just real common things that they know. So he says, remember when Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness? Well, Nicodemus can relate to that. But if Jesus would have said, you know, I'm going to be crucified on a cross, Nicodemus said, I don't even know what you're talking about. And I reject that idea. I, I've seen crucified people. They're all criminals. That is not the way God's going to do it. So Jesus takes them that way. So let's go that way. Let's go back to Numbers chapter 21. Way back in your Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, 
Numbers 21. Let's go back to the story that Jesus brings up. It's a great story. And I'm going to read 4 through 9, because it's such a fun story. Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, modern-day Jordan right now, uh, and people became impatient because of the journey. If you went with us in the summer to Israel, you went to Petra, Petra, in Jordan, that's Edom. Um, and now the people become impatient because of the journey. We never get impatient because God's taken too long. <laughs> We're just like Him. The people spoke against God and Moses, why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? In other words, we know your real motivation, God and Moses. You brought us here to die. Yeah, I went through all that trouble to bring you out here to die. <laughs> it's comical. For their, and then their complaint is, here's why, why we're saying this. For there is no food, no water, and we loathe this miserable food. You know what the miserable food is now? Manna, the bread that dropped from heaven. Now they're sick of it. They wanted it, now they're sick of it. So guess what God does because they're complaining? Because manna is a picture of Jesus Christ to come, the bread of life to come down from heaven, John chapter 6. The Lord sent fiery serpents. And by the way, they're complainers. Listen, complainers never make it in the promised land. 1 Corinthians 10 uh, attests to this right here. They were laid low. They didn't make it in because they complained. Complainers? People that gripe all the time and grumble, you're not going to get into your personal promised land because you will undermine it because you think God has not taken this road to get you to this great spot in life. Quit complaining. Quit grumbling. Quit griping. Quit gossiping. Quit talking down people's back. Just stop it. What good do you derive from it? Nothing. Well, they're complaining. So what does God do? The Lord sends fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people so that many people of Israel died. So God sends these snakes, and they're biting people, and they're poisonous, and they're killing people because they're a bunch of complainers. Verse 7. So he's chastising them pretty pretty bad. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. Oh. <laughs> we, we like the journey now. It's okay. We, we, the man is okay now too. <laughs> because we have spoken against the Lord and you intercede. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. You know, if I was the leader, I would have been tempted to say, forget you guys. You know what? You know what? You go back. You go, let them, bite them all. <laughs> But Moses doesn't. Later on, he gets pretty frustrated. We know that. And he's human. But he intercedes for the people. Verse 8, Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent. What? What? No, these guys are the ones biting. Yeah, but make one. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a standard, a pole. And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he shall live. Verse 9, and Moses made a bronze serpent. Bronze is the metal of judgment. And set it on a standard, up on a pole. And you see these things in medical buildings. They still have the, the, the serpent up on the pole. It's still to this day they use that. And it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. 
What a weird story. They sin, complaining. They play, please talk to God. God tells them, create, mold a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, raise it up. So people get bit, they look at the bronze serpent, and when they see it, they look at it, they're healed of the bite. That's weird. Okay. 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 Jesus takes Moses back to this story. He says, remember that story? The people are dying from the poison of the bite of the serpent. Moses had to have, I'm sorry, Nicodemus in John 3 had to have drifted back also to Genesis 3. The serpent speaks to Eve and gets her to bite into the fruit. See, this whole thing, Nicodemus, you begin to understand, and the healing thing is that that bronze serpent is put up on a pole. And Nicodemus, one day I'm going to be lifted up from this earth. And I'm going to carry the judgment upon my body. They just need to look at the serpent if they're bit. Now, I really don't believe it's just like this. I don't believe that. I think you had to really look at the serpent. I think you had to look to the serpent in faith and believe that this is what's going to heal you. This is what's going to change your life. And I think it's the same way the thing that Jesus is telling Nicodemus. I'm going to be lifted up. I'm going to carry the sins of mankind. Curses everyone who hangs on the tree. I'm going to carry all these things. And anyone who looks to me in faith, I will wipe away the curse of sin in their life. And they will have eternal life. Doesn't it make more sense to tell Nicodemus that instead of saying, you know, they're going to crucify me and, you know, and then I'm going to rise from the dead. He would have just said no. But he takes him to this story to illuminate him. And, and I'm sure Nicodemus left there like starting to process and think. And it wasn't until that crucifixion day that we were reading about. And you can turn back to, to Matthew 27. It wasn't until that day Nicodemus thought, I get it. I get it. Oh, man, Jesus is lifted up on a pole like that serpent. He's carrying my sins. I get it. And Nicodemus did look to Jesus for salvation because Nicodemus was one of the ones who pulled Jesus off that cross along with Joseph of Arimathea. Let me drive it home now. Uh, Matthew 27, 43, 44 says, And he, he trusts in God. They continue to mock he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I am the Son of God. You know what? He said he trusts in God. You know the right? Get this. In the middle of all the agony, which you and I cannot even fathom. They said he trusts in God. He did trust in God when he said, my God, my God. My God, my God. Which we'll read about next week. But in the midst of all the distress and all the pain and all the torture, he still trusted in God. Do we? Sometimes it's hard for me to trust in God when it's so intense, the pain and the pressure of life. But he trusts in God. And he did deliver him. Verse 44, we'll close here. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. You know what that tells me? It says the robbers. Even the one who repented, he started off insulting. But something changed him on that cross. 
and then he turns, he repents, and he acknowledges, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. That's something, huh? Yeah, that's something. That's the Spirit of God at work in a person's life. Well, that's it. I'm going to end right here. It's good talking to you, and we'll see you next time. God bless you.